What up, this is Dart Adams, and this is episode 53 of Darting in Humanity. Uh, so at midnight, Freddie Gibbs and Mad Lib released their album, Bandana, which is a follow-up to the 2014 album, Pinata. Uh, for those of you that don't remember, Freddie Gibbs and Mad Lib actually put together, I think, three EPs before they actually released Pinata. Uh, they put out Thuggin', then Shame, and Deeper. And then in 2014, they actually put together the project Pinata, which was uh, critically acclaimed, uh, well-regarded. Uh, it's been hailed as a classic. So I spent the last eight hours. I didn't get the album at midnight. I got it sooner than that. So I spent the last eight hours uh, listening to Bandana, more or less. And it's interesting because listening to an album in this day and age versus back in the days, whatever that means to you, is odd. I have to catch myself. I get to see people reacting to an album in real time on social media. I get to see people uh, live tweeting a listening process. I get to see people talk about their favorite songs. Uh, I get to see people talk about what surprises them on an album, uh, favorite verses, what have you. Now, back in the days when I listened to an album for the first time or I was around other people listening to an album for the first time, the process was so different. 30 years ago, I remember the day my big brother and I went and got De La Soul's debut album, Three Feet High and Rising. We'd heard some songs, you know. Me, myself, and I had just come out on Valentine's Day, you know, 1989. So that was like the hot song at the time, just coming up. It hadn't blown up yet, um, you know. We'd heard plug tuning, but to sit there with my brother and listen to that album as it's playing for the first time, having no expectations as to what De La Soul is going to do and just being blown away because we'd never heard anything like it. And then having people call the house and our phone had a cord and answering that phone and saying, yo, you hear this? Yo, what what is what the hell is it? Three is the magic number. What's going on? And then hearing the album in our apartment, and then having like people buzz the buzzer or whatever come upstairs, and they're talking about the album and they're listening to it with us. Because again, phones had cords. There was no real time social media. So it took a while for an album to spread back then. Even if you went somewhere, went to a friend's apartment. I remember when um, EPMD's uh, Business as Usual came out. First time I heard that album. I was at my friend Zach's house. We, Me, Zach, my boy Mark. Oh, and James. And my boy James. James Kernan. Uh, we were all coming back from school 
we go across the street to Skippy White's because Zach lived on my street. He lived directly across from Skippy, Skippy White's. He lived at 407 Mass Ave. I lived at 487 Mass Ave. So he went directly across the street to Skippy White's. He bought business as usual before I did. And the reason I didn't buy it there is because I think I've mentioned this before. Uh, Tower Records used to have tapes on sale. So Tower Records would have it for $7.99. Which would mean that it was going to be eight thirty nine with tax. At Skippy White's, it might cost eleven ninety nine, which was like twelve sixty. I wouldn't. That's a big gap in money, especially for nineteen ninety or ninety one. Hell no, I wasn't spending that money, man. Go go do um. If you go online, there's this thing where you can actually look for the um, inflation calendar. I mean, inflation calculator and look at how much money was worth or how much this money is equivalent to today to realize the difference in price. That's a lot of money, especially for that year. I refuse to spend it. Zach buys it, goes across the street. All four of us are in his living room. He plays it because that's what a stereo system is. It's not in his room. Can you believe this? He plays the tape. We're listening to it. It starts out with I'm mad. We're going crazy. Like, yo, that's, yo, this is crazy. Rewinds it, plays it again. It took us forever to get through that album because we kept rewinding stuff. Hardcore. We kept rewinding. And we're playing it on a house stereo. And we're trying to hurry up and listen to this album. Think of we, we want to get this album listened to before his mom comes home from work. Or what we do is we go to my house. We went to his house because it was closer. This is what we're doing as we're listening to the tape. So like I'm thinking about First listens. And here's another thing too. In this day and age, people have frowned on the first the first listen. Like they don't want a review of the first listen. But how many times did we listen to a tape back in the days before we gave our real opinion on it? I don't recall being around a bunch of people listening to like Slick Rick, The Great Adventures of Slick Rick. How many times did I hear Great Adventures of Slick Rick before I was talking about how much I loved it? Uh, nah, guys, I can't, I can't, I don't feel comfortable talking about that tape because I, I need to sit down with it more. I don't remember ever saying that shit. I, how many times did I hear Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back before I thought it was a dope tape? But here's the, here's where the, here's where the thing, here's where things are different. We weren't talking about albums being classics. That's where the difference lied. We didn't care about it being a classic because that wasn't important. It was the 80s. It was the early 90s. That hadn't entered our mindset. All we cared about was it was a dope tape. So there are a lot of things that get lost with time and nuance and understanding where things place in history. Because we weren't really aware of it because we weren't thinking about it because it wasn't important. 
The idea of putting things in historical context, even though man is by nature a time binder, and that's what we do as humans, we rank things by when they happen and how they happen and put them in order. It's just a natural occurrence. However, we didn't do that with rap until, I've said this before, after the source put that designation on people when they released the, um, when they had the record report section in the source, when they were talking about what albums are classic by their rating system by a five. That's what put it in people's heads. Like, wait, is this album a classic? Does it stand up to the pantheon? Does it stand up to the, the standards, the golden platinum standards of what a great rap album is? That's what made people start really thinking about it. And again, the thing that made people think about it was rap has been a recorded art form since 1979 and when the source put this out there this concept out there it was 1990 their 1990 issue after they had moved they were moving from um cambridge to new york and they put out something called the hip-hop decade and they're like well since this has been a recorded genre of music for 10 years a full decade and now, I don't think they fully understood that they were coming out of what was their first official golden era, 1986 and 1989. I don't think people fully, they didn't call it the golden era as it was happening. How do you know? Did they call the Renaissance the Renaissance as it was going on? Now, that being the case, it was time to put things in a historical perspective. And also, since this is a hip-hop magazine and this is hip-hop journalism we need to set standards and create our own continuum and context for what we do outside of what rock journalism does that's why that was important and i think a lot of people don't fully understand that when they talk about things and they're like wait 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 we can't do we can't do really I don't, again, when I first heard Dos Effects' uh, Dead Serious, I wasn't like, I need to sit with this a couple more times before I give my official opinion. And then again, none of us thought that we were the journalists that write about rap albums in the source. We didn't feel that way. We felt those were the people, there was a separation, those people are the experts, these are the people that write about this, those are the journalists. In this day and age, there's, com- there's a complete, that, 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 that level, that space, that uh, mystique is gone. It's gone. Everybody thinks that they know as well or more than the people that are experts. Why? Because for some odd reason, with real-time social media and increased mediocrity, the layperson thinks they're as good or better or no better, and in some time and in some cases they actually are, which is said, than the supposed expert. And this is one of the things that really bothers me in terms of just music journalism in general, modern music journalism in general. Uh, I've seen reviews for Bandana that were written by supposed music journalists that made me wince. They 
were cringeworthy. Why was this person allowed to write about this album? Why? And this is ultimately the reason why people say things like, they know more than the journalists who cover the genre or the music in general. Because this is what we get from somebody who's actually paid to do it. It's disappointing. But ultimately, that's where we are. Now, another thing is that with the passage of time, I'm not the same person I was back five, ten years ago, where I feel the need to necessarily go out there and give a definitive review of an album because I know for a fact that it doesn't matter necessarily how I feel about an album because music is a personal thing and it resonates with people on a different level and there are different things that you gravitate to that you cling to that you like that other people may not like and in recent years especially the last five years there's this weird thing where people ask me, and I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, people ask me, it's like, hey, uh, so do you recommend this? And this is this is a weird sub this is a weird question for me now. I a few days ago, something happened where we were talking about, and this is a dumbass discussion too. The discussion was about um Oh, I think it was Andres Hale was talking about how he'd never seen Seinfeld until later on. And when he finally saw Seinfeld, he was like, oh, shit, this show is actually funny. And I mentioned that, yeah, I didn't see Seinfeld or I didn't see Seinfeld or Friends until they went into syndication. I'm black. And for those of you that don't know this. Seinfeld. And Friends used to come on a specific time. At the same time, there was a black show that was popular amongst black audiences. So they never saw Friends or Martin. And the thing is that the black shows always ended sooner (laughs) than Friends and Seinfeld. So we started seeing that show when it was in syndication. It's a, it's a phenomenon. It's amazing. Uh, we started watching that show in syndication because it would come on every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And we're like, oh, shit, this show is actually funny. And then when our show, the show we watched ended. Then we were freed up to finally watch Seinfeld or Friends because Friends ran for so damn long. And I think I'm, I'm, Seinfeld ran for a minute, too. So I said, I say that. Then someone asked me, it's like, hey, is Friends actually funny? Because apparently they've never watched Friends. And I say, yes, Friends is funny. And a bunch of people jump in the comments like Friends isn't funny. Friends isn't funny. And my response is. I was asked the question, so I answered the question for me. Do I think Friends is funny? Yes, I do. You don't have to agree. I didn't ask you for your opinion. Quite frankly, I don't give a fuck if you think Friends is funny. It doesn't matter. You can disagree. Feel free. 
but I was asked the question. And this is another thing with me in like music, art, what have you. There are things that I like that you're not going to like. There are Netflix series I watch and I love. You're not going to enjoy. There are things you like I don't like. And I don't understand how people don't get this. I had a weird Twitter discussion that that raged on for two or three days. Don't understand why. The question was, which video game system, and this is just stupid, which video game system uh, would you eliminate from this group? And in the group was, to me, it seemed like a, a simple question, and it was very, it was very straightforward, and it was very obvious. I eliminated the Nintendo 64. And when I eliminated the Nintendo 64, I gave what I thought was a clear reason that nobody would dispute. Because again, things are about personal preference, and you also have to put, and you also have to uh, put your reasoning behind it and why. And you figure this is airtight, this is bulletproof. No one's going to question this. No one is going to ask follow-up questions, and no one's going to say, "Wait, hold on," because I've already explained it away. I said the reason why I wasn't a fan of the Nintendo 64 is because I was 21 when it was released. Also, I owned a PlayStation. And I was not a fan of any of the games that the Nintendo 64 carried that were popular. I figured that covers all the bases. There's nothing to ask. And also, I kept the Dreamcast, which, again, made sense. The Dreamcast had a lot of games that people enjoyed, even though the system died a horrible, horrible death. <sighs> Anyways, I figured that's covered. Then every all these people jump out the woodwork and they're like, wait, you didn't like Star Fox? You didn't like Mario 64 or Mario Party or... And I'm and GoldenEye 007. I'm like, didn't I already cover this? The reason why I said I was 21 when it came out is because a lot of those Nintendo games from that era appeal to younger kids, to younger gamers. If I was an adult when the system came out, why would I care about any of those games? And also I explained later, I was like, I was not into Nintendo in the late 90s. But that did not stop people jumping in my jumping in my um, comments and my ad replies for days. This is the same the same feeling I have with a lot of art. Everything isn't for everyone. We're not all going to like the same things. So the recommendation, if you like something you love something, if it resonates with you, if it speaks to you, if that's your shit, why do you care what anybody else thinks? Why does it matter? That's why I don't feel the need to jump out on a limb and say, yes, I recommend this album. Yes, I recommend this album. Listen for yourself. If it's for you, then yay. Ride with it. It might not be for me. I am fully aware that my taste isn't for everybody. 
I'm perfectly fine with it. I don't know why other people feel the need to attack somebody else for their preferences. Unless their preferences are ill-informed. But then again, there are some people that just latch on to something because it's their speed or it's their taste or if it's their whatever. Fine. Why fight it? Let it go. People annoy me. Dart against humanity. So... What's happened recently? Okay, yeah, here, here, here it is. There have been a lot of anniversaries, uh, one of them being the 35th anniversary of the release of Purple Rain Past. Most people celebrated it as uh, June 25th. I, June 26th, because June 25th is a Monday. That would have been the UK release, came out on a Tuesday, I believe. Anyways. So a lot of people talking about Purple Rain. It's thirty the first fifth anniversary. I I think Purple Rain is one of the all time greatest film soundtracks. But if I rate it directly, it just just simply as a Prince album, it's not up there with my favorite Prince albums. It's just right there below it. As a soundtrack, it's amazing. Because when I I don't wa- I don't listen to Purple Rain alone, okay. Purple Rain to me works within the confines of the film. When I I don't listen I don't I I I haven't listened to Purple Rain without the film since I was eight or nine years old. After I saw Purple Rain, the movie, it made the album better. Because the album on its own was a good album, but I was really attached to 1999. I loved 1999. I did not like Purple Rain as much as 1999. I just didn't. When I see the film, I'm like, yo, I get it. This is perfect. And also you have to remember that Purple Rain, the soundtrack was out for like a month before we saw before. No, Purple Rain is a soundtrack was out a month before Purple Rain came out. I can't say we saw because I was I was eight going on nine when Purple Rain, the movie came out. I did not see Purple Rain in the theater. I was not allowed. My older brother and older sister both saw Purple Rain and came back and told me about it. I think they saw it multiple times and came back and told me about it. I didn't see Purple Rain until it came out on VHS. And I'm going to have to look up exactly when that was. But I saw the hell out of Purple Rain. I was nine and I was just like, yo, this movie is incredible. This is the greatest thing ever. Prince is so short and Apollonia is so tall. Anyway. And Prince was wearing boots. With heels. And he was still short. God bless that man. Anyways. What also happens is. There's another anniversary. Okay, so. 
tomorrow is going to be the 35th anniversary. And this is why I remember, I kind of remember that Purple Rain didn't come out on a Monday because on that Friday, uh, I believe that was the day that uh, Graffiti Rock first came on in syndication. I remember it coming on at night. It was a big deal because there was commer- there were commercials. Graffiti Rock's coming on this channel at, it was like 8 o'clock? And it was going to be a special and everybody and their mother was going to watch it because it was huge. There was going to be a TV show about hip hop and everybody was going to be on it. The Treacherous Three, Run DMC, you're going to have the New York City Breakers. It was insane. It was like watching Avengers, the Avengers movie, but the hip hop version. And it was only 30 minutes long. And no one had VCRs back then. This is another thing. Nobody had VCRs back then. I think less than or about 25% of American households in 1984 had VCRs. And also, no one had cable. So, and this is an insane time, right? So, I remember seeing Graffiti Rock and knowing I was probably never going to see it again. I just resigned myself to it. I was just going to talk about it in school. I remember being an adult working at Tower Records, 1999, talking about Graffiti Rock from memory. From memory. 15-year-old memories. There was no way for me to look up who was in Graffiti Rock again. There's no way for me to... Who had Graffiti Rock? Who had a copy of Graffiti Rock? However, in the back of the source, there was an ad that said, Hey, we have VHS tapes of Graffiti Rock, and we also have copies of, of Style Wars and Wild Style. Again, these eventually came out on, got distribution and eventually came out on VHS thanks to, I think, Rhino. Rhino had uh, gotten the rights to uh, to Wild Style, so they distributed that on VHS and then DVD. Style Wars eventually was released on VHS and DVD. A lot of it was engi- was um, was engineered by uh, Mail Order, Hip Hop Mail Order, that first put that out. Um, they also had Stations that Elevated, which is another... A documentary from back in the days about uh, Graph. But that was a huge day watching Graffiti Rock with Michael Holman hosting. And it was a pilot. We didn't realize it was a pilot. We thought it was a special. I didn't realize it was a pilot and it was based and, and, and the whole idea was to if it got excellent ratings or good ratings and was able to secure a sponsorship, it was going to be a regular show. I didn't understand that. Apparently, it aired in 88 different um, markets and it did well across all 88 markets. But for some odd reason, it still didn't get picked up. I know it aired again. Like maybe weeks or a month later. I I don't think I saw it for the second time, but I do know it aired twice and in some places and it just never came on again. And we just chalked it up to I missed it. 
which is insane now. Because what? Everything is recorded. Everything is is somewhere. You could go on YouTube and find it. It's on Twitter. Somebody's gonna have it, gonna have the link for you and have it uploaded. Nothing's ever gone. You never missed any you, you can you can you even miss anything anymore? Just the idea that back in the days, if you didn't see something, you missed it. If you didn't see Thundercats when it aired for the first time, likely you wouldn't see it again. Unless um, FHE, who was the company, Family Home Entertainment, uh, when Thundercats finally became a series, if they released that VHS. And that would have been years down the road. Like, yo... It's the first. It's the first thing. Um, this first special with Thundercats. It's on. It's on on VHS because nobody could record it because nobody had a VCR and nobody had the presence of mind to record it. And for the most part, you had to hope something came on one of the um, UHF channels so it actually came in clear enough so you could record it. Because if it came on like one of the top channels, like four, five, seven, ten, you were screwed. Maybe two. Channels 2 might work. Channel 2 might work because 2 was um, public access, uh, WGBH here in Boston. And that actually came in clear. I don't remember that channel ever being a problem of having like static. But you had to hope something was on 2 in Boston. You had to hope something was on 25, 38, 50, 56, um, 64... 66 or 68 you had to hope something was on those channels so it would actually come in somewhat clear so you could record it and i say somewhat clear because it wasn't clear guaranteed like cable is but it was clearer where you could make out the picture but it wasn't 100 percent clear i don't even know if i'm making sense to people who didn't live through this era oh and another thing happened Uh, recently, there was this thing where uh, people got on um, Twitter and they were talking about uh, black movies that they hadn't seen or that they'd missed because they were of a certain age. Uh, one of the problems was that a lot of these people were culture writers. And I understand that they were like millennials or young millennials. And... They maybe weren't um, exposed, exposed to or didn't see certain films. So it still kind of it was problematic for some of us because it was like you write about culture and, and film and art, but you don't have the nece- I don't think you fully have the necessary um, knowledge base to maybe. Uh, critique things if you don't have this in your repertoire if you don't have this for reference that was my critique however I do recognize that the lives of um, generation Xers and younger millennials and generation Z is vastly different 
vastly different. I explained this on a, um, on a YouTube, uh, not YouTube, on a Twitter video that I put up. Of course, everything's two minutes, 20 seconds. So you have to kind of rush through everything, my explanation. But ultimately, it was that my generation, I again was born in 1975. My parents were born in the 40s. And growing up, I, we only had 8 to 12 channels. I was exposed to things all the time that were between 30 and 40 years old. Things that were before my time, way before my time, not just before my time, way before my time. Perfect example. Uh, early 80s, I'm guessing 1981, 1982. Myself, my older brother, Dave, who's six years older than me, and my younger brother, who's three years younger than me, Jeff. We're all watching, as we normally did, um, Our Gang slash Little Rascals, black and white. Full black and white, watching Little Rascals, which is what we normally did in the early 80s, all right? So we're watching Little Rascals, and they have this little... Uh, all of a sudden, the kids decide to do this uh, patriotic thing and do a salute to the armed forces. All right. So Darla's singing her little heart out with her little stubby legs and she's lifting her knees and she's singing with her little bob and she's singing her ode to the army, the navy and the marines. And as you may have guessed, myself. My older brother and my younger brother are all looking at each other like, what's going on? How come they're leaving out the Air Force? So we're really confused as to why they're leaving out the Air Force. Now, it didn't occur to us at the time, but the Air Force didn't exist at the time of the movie we were watching. So you have the Air Force is founded in 1907, but it wasn't an independent service until 1947. Okay. Think about that. That's weird. Also, there was this one time I'm watching um my I'm watching a cartoon. I'm just watching a cartoon and it's a Bugs Bunny cartoon and there's this little gremlin that's hijacking a plane and they're on the plane and the plane's crashing and the plane's about to crash and the, the gremlin looks at the, the screen and says sorry folks we ran out of gas and Bugs Bunny says you know how it is with these A cards and he points to this sign and it says A and the cartoon ends and I'm like what, what, what just happened I don't get it so I go to my mom and I'm like mom What's an A card? She's like, what? I said, what's an A card? I was just watching this Bugs Bunny cartoon. And, and this plane didn't crash. They said it ran out of gas. I don't get it. What, what's, what, what were they talking about? And she said, um, 
Baby, go look it up. This is 1982. I'm looking in dictionaries. And my mom, I told you before, she had this thing called the Groyer book, the World Encyclopedias. I can't find anything about A cards or any of this shit. So she's like, well, then go to the library. I lived on Mass Ave at the time. The closest library was the, uh, of course, it was copy library, but... That was the big people library. The library for the kids that we could go to was on um, Tremont. So I lived on Mass Ave on the corner of Tremont. So it was quite literally like a block and a half down the street, cross the street, and then walk down to that library. I went in. I asked the librarian. She gives me a book. I read. Back in the days of World War II, there were gas rationing cards. The most common gas rationing card was, I believe, the A card. And I think the A card limited you to five gallons of gas a week or some shit like that. So the joke was the people always ran out of gas because they had A cards. Because they could only use so much gas. (laughs) Ha ha ha. Ha. Half hour later I go home and I tell my mom I figured out what it is. The point I'm making is that I'm seven years old. And I went to the library to figure out a joke that was written in 1943 for a cartoon that I watched 40 years later. I grew up watching shit like Ozzy and Harriet, which ran from 1952 to 1965, black and white. Then it was color. I grew up watching Leave it to Beaver from the 50s. I grew up watching um, The Honeymooners. Which I didn't realize until later was only 39 episodes until, of course, it came out on VHS. Oh, 39 episodes. I'm like, it was only 39 episodes. Because you have to compare it to like Ozzy and Harriet, which had hundreds of episodes. Or I Love Lucy, which had hundreds of episodes. Or any of the other like long-running black and white shows that we watch. Leave it to Beaver, which had hundreds of episodes. Gee, Wally. Wow, Beef, mom's gonna be sore. You know, like, what the hell is this shit? So, as a kid, we used to watch cartoons. Um, a lot of the cartoons, you have to remember that they were film strips. So, they would show these in movie theaters. So, it wasn't just for kids, it was for adults. And they uh, referenced famous actors and musicians and comedians of the 40s and the 50s. I didn't know who Jimmy Durante was. I didn't get it. I'd ask my mom, who's that supposed to be? Oh, that's Humphrey Bogart. That's Lauren Bacall. I don't know who the fuck these people are. But I'm exposed to it as a young child. Carmen Miranda. How is a kid who was born in 1975 supposed to know who Carmen Miranda is? Watching a cartoon. But these are the things I was exposed to growing up. And we all were. There were a lot of things that existed back in the days that don't exist now. I grew up using a typewriter. Okay. You know who used a typewriter? Ernest Hemingway. You know, like, think about it. Langston Hughes was using a typewriter. Lorraine Hansberry was banging away on a typewriter, typing away on manuscripts. You know what I'm saying? Truman 
Truman Capote. These people were using typewriters. Harper Lee. I grew up. I was using a typewriter for my for my papers, for my term papers in high school. Before a word processor, back when the computer lab had a dot matrix printer, and you had to have special permission to use that, and very few people had word processors. My sister, when she went to Wellesley, uh, she eventually got an electric typewriter, and that was my savior. I started using I started using her electric typewriter after she came home from Wellesley to do my reports. Electric typewriter. I started using a Macintosh normally when I uh, left Boston Latin School and went to Eng- went to English High in 1992 93. Then it was regular for me to use a Mac. And type all my papers on a Mac and have them printed out. Then I got one at home. That's insane, right? My senior year of high school was when uh, Web 2.0 kicked in. And I did the demonstration. 1994. That's 25 years ago. That's nuts. So it's important that we understand that if you grew up in the Internet era, you were not constantly exposed to things that were 30, 25 years ahead of your time. All the repeats I watched when I was a kid were were either from the fifth between the 50s and the 70s. So the earliest reruns I was watching was probably good times. You had stuff like um, Three's Company was in syndication. WKRP in Cincinnati. Like, that was the newer stuff. But, like, oldest stuff was, like, from the 50s. I'm watching Superman in black and white. Every summer, we're watching Gidget and the Monkees, which I think were, like, 1966. Batman from 1966, 67. We're watching cartoons from the 60s. And then we're watching shit like Popeye. Which some of those joints were from the 30s and 40s. The Flintstones was from the 60s. So you have to keep these things in mind when you're thinking of when you're a Gen Xer and you're critiquing millennials. They have not been exposed to the wide array of things that we were. I I was watching variety shows back as a kid that were in the late 70s, early 80s, which were a throwback to the old vaudeville era. That's insane. When I was a kid, I used to watch Mel Torme and and all these people who were like Liberace. You know, like, think about that. Pearl Bailey. Fucking Red Skelton. Like, this is crazy. There's also things that, like, we had that they don't have. Uh, How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. 
A stitch in time saves nine. You know, it's as easy as falling off a log. I actually did a um I actually did a lecture and I used this to open. I was like, all right, everybody, I divide people by age. I was like, who finished this phrase? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? They go practice, practice, practice. And I was like, who never heard that? You know? And I was just going down the line that who's buried in Grant's tomb? Who's ever heard this? You know? Because life for us is completely different for them. And it's reflected in their actions and their attitudes towards things because our way of life is not their way of life. And the things that we had instilled in us don't even, they can't relate to. And you know what? The reason they can't relate to it because they don't have to. Why should they? It has nothing to do with them. I didn't have cable until 1991. I remember the day I got a cordless phone. Okay? A phone without a cord. I remember the day I finally got three-way calling. I mean, uh, a two-way. Like, uh, you could click over. And then, like, you could have somebody on hold. I remember the, the, the day Star 69 came out. And not too long after that, there was a song called Star 69. It was like a, a, a reggae slash soca song. And it was hot on WILD. Star 69. Because it was the new hot thing. I remember uh, I, was, I was at the uh, record company not too long ago. And we were talking about memorizing phone numbers. Who has to memorize a phone number now? These are things that we have to keep in mind. As the world changes. As life changes. We have to keep in mind that our existence is not the same as the generation that came after us or generation after that. And we have to be mindful of that. But at the same time, if you're going to write about culture or art, especially black culture and black art or any type of specific genre or scene or anything like that, or culture, just make sure that you are fully well-versed in it. Because you're going to be, you're gonna have to write about something and you're not gonna have spaces to place in your repertoire, in your memory banks to draw from. You're not gonna have, um, Sweet Sweetback's badass song to draw from. You're not going to have uh, Black Wax Is That Jazz by Gil Scott Heron in your back pocket or to pull from. And you're going to misjudge and not understand when someone else references it and you're going to look like an ass and this is the issue that I have that's the sole only issue I have I can't fault somebody from when they were born because it's stupid but you're gonna have to dig deep because there's a whole well of information and knowledge 
and material from the diaspora that you are going to have to catch up on. And if you can't do it yourself, find somebody who is an expert and get caught up because it will only do a disservice to your readership and your writing slash art and critique going forward. It can only make you better. All right. I'm sick of talking.